morning's scripture comes from the book of Luke, chapter 12, verses 13 through 21. Someone in the crowd said to him, Teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. But he said to him, Man, who made me a judge or arbitrator over you? And he said to them, Take care and be on your guard against all covetousness. For one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. And he told them a parable, saying, The land of a rich man produced plentifully. And he thought to himself, What shall I do? For I have nowhere to store my crops. And he said, I will do this. I will tear down my barns and build larger ones. And there I will store all my grain and my goods. And I will say to my soul, Soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, be merry. But God said to him, Fool, this night your soul is required of you, and the things you have prepared, whose will they be? So is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. You may be seated. Uh, my name is Derek. I'm one of the pastors here at Stonehouse Church, and we are glad to see you. Uh, as Nathan mentioned briefly a minute ago, perhaps now it may be fall. In this, there was much rejoicing. Um, we are digging into the book of Luke in a new series called The Extent of Grace, where we're going to be walking through the portions of the gospel of Luke that are not found in any of the other gospels. Um, if you're new to the Bible, um, or even if you've been familiar with it for a while, this may be helpful to you that Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, four books at the beginning of the New Testament that are called the Gospels or the Gospel accounts, um, these stories are different um, even though they are the same. Um, and so oftentimes you'll see them divided kind of to three in one, uh, the three being Matthew, Mark, and Luke that are called the Synoptic Gospels. Um, because of their very close similarities. Um, they share many of the same stories. Um, they share much of the same uh, language and some of the same people uh, giving the accounts, or I mean, uh, uh, accounted for in the accounts. And then you see John is kind of this outlier because John writes in a, in a really different manner. Um, he records uh, some things differently than the others do. doesn't quite seem to follow some uh, of the same patterns that the other two or the other three do. Um, and I heard it once explained a long time ago that, um, that Matthew, Mark, and Luke are like ABC, CBC, CBS, and NBC. Uh, they're all just basically the same thing, just with a different brand on it. Uh, and that John is something like CNN or Fox News, just way off on the side, completely different than the others, but uh, you know, different and unique in its own way. And so um, Matthew, Mark, and Luke are very, very similar, but in their similarities, Luke has added content compared to the other two. Um, and so some of this added content is just simply expounding further on some of the things that we see in the other Gospels. And then also we see in Luke's added content that there are specific groups of people that he continually wants to uh, bring up and kind of touch on the way that Jesus' message came to them, uh, that Jesus himself approached them, uh, the people that he was spending time with, and so on and so forth. In particular, people that were kind of outliers, people that to the Jewish context and community were maybe on the, on the external um, sitting, watching, looking from uh, outside, looking in on what was going on. People like Gentiles, uh, women, children, um, those who were poor, and, uh, and all that kind of stuff. So as we, as we continue to, to dig through Luke, I think we'll see Jesus focusing on them uh, again and again. And, and the, the beauty of Luke and his additional information is not that he's trying to teach us a different Jesus. 
Not at all, right? Luke's not saying, yeah, Matthew got part of it and Mark got part of it, but I'm going to give you all of it because it's they weren't enough. He just simply is giving us more of the same Jesus. And so you don't see any inconsistency in these additional uh, things that Luke has compared to the other two. In fact, we see additional insight, not, um, not distraction and pulling us away from it. So as we dig through this, we're starting by going through the parables of Luke that are not in the other Gospels. And so if you want to really like follow along chapter by chapter reading through Luke with us, you, it's not going to work that way because we're kind of going to be all over. Um, so we're just going to be trudging through uh, one by one the parables that are not in the other Gospels. Last week we started with a very famous parable called the Good Samaritan. Uh, that was in Luke 10. We are entirely ch- skipping over Luke 11 and we are going into Luke chapter 12 to look at this parable of the rich fool. I'm going to read it again here in a second, but just to highlight the fact that the parables we, we talked about last week are, are stories that Jesus told to do two things. Okay? Jesus told the disciples about parables. He said, I, I speak in parables so that the kingdom of God might be revealed to whom it is given. And he also says, I speak in parables so that things are hidden, the spiritual truth of things are hidden from those who are not given eyes to see or ears to hear. And so the parables serve two purposes. That's why sometimes when you come to the parables and you think you understand what they mean, you might be completely missing the depth of their teaching. Like last week, the Good Samaritan, you might read that story on a face level and say, I need to be a better neighbor and walk away and try harder to be a better neighbor. When in fact Jesus did not at all teach the parable of the Good Samaritan so that you could try harder to be a better neighbor. Jesus taught the parable of the Good Samaritan to show you that no matter how hard you try, you will never be a good neighbor. That the goodness of a great neighbor is beyond you and so you need something else past that, deeper than that, other than that, in order to earn or be have, uh, have a rightful place in the kingdom of God. And that, in fact, is the greater better neighbor, the greater good neighbor, and that good neighbor is Jesus who laid his life down for you. right? And so today, in the story of the rich fool, we might just simply be led to the idea that I just need to give away money. Right? At face level, we might just think this is a story about I need to give away money. And especially for us Americans who are you know, comparatively on the global scale, very rich. Uh, we get annoyed by Jesus talking about money all the time. Okay, get used to it. 25% of his teaching is about money. We're going to see why today. Because this isn't Jesus just simply saying you need to give more money to church or to charity. Right? This is a much deeper thing, and that's why Jesus tells a parable to reveal something deeper than that. So let's read this again. We're actually going to read another parable in Luke 12 as well, but we're going to start with this one, Luke 12, verse 13 through 21. We just want to let the words of God wash over us and read again and again as we seek to become washed and familiar uh, in his truth. So it says this, verse 13, Someone in the crowd said to him, Teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. But he said to him, man, who made me a judge or arbitrator over you? And he said to them, take care and be on guard against all covetousness, for one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. And he told them a parable, saying, the land of a rich man produced plentifully. And he thought to himself, what shall I do, for I have nowhere to store my crops? And he said, I will do this. I will tear down my barns and build larger ones, and there I will store all my grain and my goods. And I will say to my soul, soul. (laughs) You have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, be merry. 
But God said to him, Fool, this night your soul is required of you, and the things you have prepared, whose will they be? So is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. All right, let's pray. Father, thanks for this moment um, where we pause and we try to quiet our soul as difficult as that may be uh, in this world. Um, It's noisy out there, and it's noisy in here, in our heads, in our hearts. Uh, So we pray that by your gracious Holy Spirit, you would come and aid us in seeing clearly uh, what it is that you're teaching to us so that we might be transformed by a deeper work of you inside of us and not just conformed into behavior changes uh, for the sake of trying to, to uh, muster up some kind of religious duty. Would you point us, God, to uh, what is in our hearts through talking about money? And I know this is always a, a thin ice, so to say, as we, we tread on a, a, a prevalent idol in American culture, the idol of money. And so, God, I pray that you would help us to um, recognize and, and kind of push aside some of our, um, our preconceived ideas of, of what it means to have money or not have money, um, and that we would see uh, what you're doing through uh, the tool of money in our lives and in the lives around us. And ultimately, our, our greatest hope is that you would just give us ears to hear and minds to comprehend, uh, eyes to see Jesus clearly through this parable, this story, that we would be those to whom the kingdom is revealed uh, because you've chosen to give it to us uh, by your grace and through your mercy. Lord, we ask these things all in the precious and sweet name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. So Jesus gives this whole thing away in verse 15. You find this often with the parables in a small little sentence or in a, in a, in a, in a quiet little teaching off to the side afterward or, or just in, in, in a little hint somewhere in the parable exactly what Jesus is trying to, to point us to. And so in verse 15, he just simply says, take care, be on guard against all covetousness, right? So Jesus already sees when this man approaches him, he sees in the heart like he does so well in every person who ever comes and approaches him, and he does so well in us as uh, us too, is that he perceives the inner motives of what we're coming to Jesus with, right? So this guy is mad that the brother took all the inheritance, okay? Rightfully so, right? I mean, that, that's kind of mean. Why'd you take it all? You know, we're supposed to share it, right? Uh, but this guy on the, on, the, on the heart level is not simply interested in fairness because of what Jesus says, Okay? And Jesus just says, I'm not interested in settling arguments here. I'm interested in your heart. It's basically what he's going after here. And so he turns and he takes this opportunity and speaks to the crowd and says, be on guard against all covetousness. And so then he tells this story of this rich man who gets a, a lot of, uh, of um, crops and he wants to store the crops and, uh, and hide them away. And some of the conversation around this whole reality has to do with kind of the... Um, the realities of earning and saving, right? Because we might on face level look at this story about this rich man and think Jesus is against earning and against saving. And he, in fact, is not against earning and he is not against saving at all. In fact, both of those things are extremely biblical, right? God has given mankind work to do and he's provided opportunities for us to do work that would provide for our needs. That's been the story of human history from the beginning. He told Adam and Eve to make a culture, to cultivate the garden, to begin to build a society, 
right? Work is not the result of sin. If anybody's ever told you that, they're dead wrong, okay? God designed human beings to be busy with their hands producing, okay? And so it is a very godly thing to work, and it is a very godly thing to produce. At one time in human history, it was producing crops, right? At another time in history, it was beginning to produce um, iron ore and rocks, right? At another time in human history, it was beginning to, to produce skyscrapers and banks at another time in human history, right? So all throughout human history, we've been building, we've been providing, we've been working, and God has given to us through that work so that we might begin to share in his bounty, right? And so God is not against working, and neither is he against saving. He actually commands it elsewhere in Scripture. He encourages us to provide not just for our children, but for our children's children, to lay up an inheritance for those who will come after us. These are Biblical mandates, you find them in Psalms, you find them in Proverbs, you find them in much of the stories of the Old Testament. You see that God is actually for these things. And so what then is going on here? Well, fairly so, we need to look at the next parable to understand more fully what's going on here. Now, this parable is also found in the other Gospels, and so that's why it's not our, our, our chief text today, but I think we need this in order to continue to flesh out what's going on here. So let's follow Luke 12, and we're going to read quite a few verses here, starting in verse 22. So Jesus continues, and he said to his disciples, and remember we talk about this word all the, all the time, therefore. Okay, That's why I think this is really important. Jesus, with the therefore, attaches to that last story, this next story. Okay, So they, they really work in harmony together. Therefore, I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat, nor about your body, what you will put on. For life is more than food and the body more than clothing. Consider the ravens. They neither sow nor reap. They have neither storehouse nor barn. And yet God feeds them. Oh, how much more value are you than birds? And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his span of life? If then you are not able to do a small, as small a thing as that, why are you anxious about the rest? Consider the lilies, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass which is alive in the field today and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, how much more will he clothe you, O you of little faith? And do not seek what you are to eat and what you are to drink, nor be worried. For all the nations of the world seek after these things, and your Father knows that you need them. Instead, seek his kingdom, and these things will be added to you. Fear not, little flock, for it is your Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. Sell your possessions and give to the needy. Provide yourself with money bags that do not grow old, with a treasure in the heavens that does not fail, where, where no thief approaches and no moth destroys. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. So we see Jesus going into such a deep level here. He's talking about fear and anxiety and, and just the, the reality of lack that we have in trusting God for his provision and that we are prone to neglect the greater need of seeking his kingdom as we seek after those things that are only of this world. And he says at the end of all of this, for where your treasure is, there your heart will be also a heart meaning the the seat center the, the 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 place from which our actions and our will and our attitudes flow out as we treasure the kingdom of heaven that is the outflow of a heart that's been transformed by jesus and so jonathan pennington a commentator a commentator on the book of luke 
says that Jesus' warning here is to beware of the double danger of money. On the one hand, money easily generates greed and covetousness, and on the other hand, the reality of money easily creates heart-deep anxiety in us. So the issue here is not whether money is good or bad, not whether having money is good or bad, not whether earning money is good or bad, not whether saving money is good or bad. Okay? Money in itself is not moral. Okay? It is an amoral object. It by itself, when you hold up a bill, the thing itself does not have internal goodness or internal badness. Okay? Money is simply a revealer. Okay? Money is a tool that exposes. It shows us our hearts. It is not itself corrupt. It exposes corrupt hearts. It is not itself evil. It exposes evil hearts. It is not even itself good. It gives opportunity to good hearts. Right? Money is a revealer. Now, we need to take a giant pause and look at the categories that the Bible gives us for wealth and poverty in the Scriptures, right? Because here's the thing. We, as we grow up, as we're formed, as we're taught, as we're trained, as we observe the world in our formative years, we begin to develop preconceived notions about wealth and poverty, okay? Now, you may have been poor most of or your entire life. You've struggled financially. Maybe your parents struggled to get ahead or to stay ahead, or, or maybe they even struggled to have anything at all. This is your lot in life, so to say. The cards you were dealt, you've struggled with this reality for a long time. And through that experience of poverty, what you saw around you and what you heard from the formative voices in your world, your parents, those who influenced you, the world around you, those developed an unbiblical view of wealth. You may have believed that rich people are wicked, all of them, that everybody that has money is wicked because of your poverty, because of your experience, that may be your outlook towards those who are rich. You may believe that the only way to gain wealth is by cheating others, by taking advantage of the poor, by selfishly hoarding resources, by not giving away a dime, and so on and so forth, because you saw the negative effects of people who did live like that, and so therefore you made an automatic categorization that all people that are rich or have money, more than me anyway, are bad people. Because the only way you can get money is by taking advantage of people like me, or people like my parents, or people like my neighbors, so therefore the rich are wicked. And this is not a biblical view, it's an experiential view. Or, this is the crazy part, you can actually be raised in that same environment, have that same experience, and also believe, or and believe differently, that it is in fact the poor that are wicked. Because of your experiences, you can believe that poverty is the worst possible reality that anybody could ever live in. You may believe that the only way you will ever show that you have worth or value is that if you have a ton of money. You may have seen your parents squander their resources. You may have seen people just lose the ability to give because they were lazy. You may have seen these negative effects and you might have just said, everybody that's poor is wicked and so the only way to, for me to be good is for me to not be poor. Right? We can have a negative view of both the rich and the poor from the position of poverty. Now what's crazy about the human heart is we can do the exact same thing from the platform of riches 
from the platform of wealth. Okay? You may have a different experience than what I just explained. You may be well off in terms of worldly standards. You may have been comfortable all of your life. You may have had parents who had very well-providing employment. They were on an upper-tier level of ed education or employment. They kept getting advances in their workplaces. You might have never had a single day in your life when you wondered if you would have enough money, enough money to eat, enough money to fill your gas tank, enough money to enjoy some luxuries, and so on and so forth. And so, too, even through that experience, what you saw around you, what you heard from the formative voices in your world, they developed an unbiblical view of wealth, where you may believe that all of the poor people in the world are wicked. They're all wicked. That they're all poor because they're sinners, because they're bad people. A giant swath of humanity that you just say they're all wicked. They're poor just because they're lazy. They're poor just because they're foolish. They're poor because they've squandered whatever has come into their hands. They've been unwise with their decision-making, and so therefore they're, they are poor. That might be the way you look at the poor from a platform of wealth. Or you may also, and this is really crazy, you may also actually begin to believe that wealthy people are wicked. From a standpoint of wealth, you can look at wealth and say wealth is wickedness because you've seen how some of the people in your world have obtained wealth and you've seen that they've been crooked. You've seen that they've rejected the need or the, 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 uh, the opportunity to help others and squandered their wealth only for themselves, that they've only gotten riches through uh, corrupting situations. Or maybe they, you've seen somebody who's so wealthy because they're so dang cheap they won't even buy their kid a brand name shoe. You've got this bad taste in your mouth for people that are rich because you see how they've obtained their riches. And in our culture, we tell stories that points to every one of these different developed viewpoints in our culture, right? Just to name a few, Aladdin, which I'm pumped, is releasing a new movie, right? So it was a, a, a movie of my youth. Uh, old Broadway play, right? Aladdin is a, a young boy who despises his poverty, right? He grows up on the streets, he doesn't have anything, and he thinks the only possible way that he will ever have worth or value in his culture is to be rich. I need a palace, I need a kingdom, I need a treasure room, otherwise I'm worthless. It's a poor person who views poverty as wickedness. And the only way to redeem his life is to get out of it, right? Or you might see even the story of like a rich who despises their, rich, their riches. Bruce Wayne is an example of this in the comics, right? Batman. He sees his parents' wealth and what it built, but all the while the wickedness of Gotham thrived beneath. And so he says, forget it. Forget the riches, right? I'm going to go pursue a life of poverty. I'm going to go experience criminality. I'm going to go know what it's like to not have money because that's where real character and real virtue lie, and that's the only place that I'll find a way to actually be contributing to this world, right? So we can take on all these different viewpoints. We can live our lives and judge others and elevate the self and determine the heart based on the external realities of poverty or riches.
And Jesus speaks this parable against that danger. He speaks these parables against that danger. And all of the testimony of Scripture breaks down those simple categorizations that we make and expands them so that we can understand there is a diversity and there is some nuance when it comes to wealth and poverty in Scripture. And so there's actually four categories in the Bible when it comes to wealth and poverty. And those four categories are the following. In Scripture, there are the unrighteous rich and there are the righteous rich. Also in Scripture, there are the unrighteous poor and in Scripture, there are the righteous poor. Okay? I want to touch on a few scriptures or a scripture for each of these. Let's start with the unrighteous rich. So Micah, one of the, don't call him minor, but one of the minor prophets, says this in Micah 2, verses 1 and 2. He says, Woe to those who devise wickedness and work evil on their beds. When the morning dawns, they perform it, because it is in, their pow- in the power of their hand. They covet fields and seize them, and houses, and take them away. They oppress a man and his house, a man and his inheritance. And so Micah is speaking to God's people in an accusation against them by the way that wealth, because of the way that wealth is accumulated in their midst. Okay? God is saying people plot and scheme and build systems to get rich and to oppress the poor. They lay in bed and dream about how they can take advantage of people, rob them, and benefit from it. Okay? So God in this place is is speaking against the unrighteous rich. Those who obtain wealth at the neglect or even the abuse of other people. Okay? There's wickedness in that, even though there's wealth in that. Some wealth is obtained through unrighteousness. Okay? Some wealth is obtained even though the heart is deceitfully scheming to take advantage of other people. And what's interesting, too, just about this category is that much of the judgment that God brings down on the nation of Israel when they're carried away into captivity in Babylon and much of the judgment that's, that's proclaimed against the nations around them, like Edom and Assyria and all these other places, God speaks against this kind of system, these kind of people. Again and again in his lists of why you deserve judgment, why the Old Testament kingdoms deserve judgment, God repeatedly says, because there is unrighteous wealth among you. The rich keep getting richer by stepping on people, by squishing people. Your kingdom is built on systems that celebrate this. God brought judgment on nations because of that type of reality. Okay? We cannot miss that this is in our scriptures. Okay? That the obtaining of wealth through unrighteous deeds is a, an act worthy of the fiercest judgments of God. And listen, listen, listen. Think about this. You want that. Spare me the God who cares not for the poor who are being stomped on by a society of wealth. Spare me that God who doesn't hear the cries of the south side. Spare me the God who's ignoring 
the oppressed, right? You don't want that God. Search your heart. Are you not infuriated when you take the time to think about it, or do you just simply avoid when you see the commercial, you click the channel, or you get past the banner ad, or whatever that speaks about the poverty that exists in your world, there's something in our hearts that says, this should not be so, right? And there's something sometimes that's reflected in our ballots, or that's reflected by our marches, or whatever, that says, this cannot happen. It is, it is, it is worthy of judgment, Right? So I, I put before you a God who's gracious who says that should not exist. And I bring judgment where it does exist. Especially when it's my people that allow it to exist. Okay? There is a strong message throughout all of Scripture against the unrighteous wealthy. And we want it. We want a God who says the unfair ought not be left unfettered. We do want justice, right? Now, we have a lot of places to color in the lines as far as what that looks like and how we pull that off and so on and so forth. But at the end of the day, we want a God who says that's not okay. Right? We want to follow a God like that. So there are the unrighteous rich, but there are also the righteous rich. I alluded to this verse among others just a minute ago. Proverbs 13:22 says, A good man leaves an inheritance to his children's children, but the sinner's wealth is laid up for the righteous. What does that mean? Now you've got to understand Proverbs when it says things like good and righteous. It's not contradicting all the other scriptures that say we have dark, sinful hearts. <laughs> okay, so all of us have dark, sinful hearts. And there are people who live in realities of righteousness and goodness, which are right actions, wise actions, good actions, even in the midst of having dark and corrupt hearts. Okay, so we've got to make that little caveat here. But we see there that, that a good man leaves an inheritance, that it is good to work and to earn and to save. And not only to do that to provide for our children, which a lot of us think is the reason that we would work and earn, so that we can support a family. It's a good reason, godly reason. There's righteousness in that but in addition also to provide for their kids. So there's a, a, a literal command, there's a, a value in Scripture that says work wisely with your money to earn wealth so that you might provide for your household. Okay? That takes work, that takes planning, right? That takes education, that takes sitting down with somebody who might know more than you if you struggle in that area and saying, what can I do? What do I have to do? What do I have to change? What should we be working toward? Right? There's a righteous rich that you work and you earn and you're rewarded and you provide. And there's goodness in that. And God celebrates that reality. And in that reality, we always see that the righteous rich are attached to the needs of others. Always. We always see that in Scripture. That wealth is never about me and my own provision and my own house and my own barns and my own uh, crops. It is about what I can bring to others, how I can provide for others, first my family and then my community, right? So how is it that God brings wealth into our world that he can funnel through us to help provide for others? One of the commands in, uh, in I think it's 1 Corinthians, to, to work, Paul says, stop being slothful, go get a job so that you can share. That's what he says. He says you should work so you can share. He skips right over the providing for your children and your, and your grandchildren because that's well embedded in Scripture. 
So Paul knows, everybody knows what he's talking about. Everybody even just internally understands I should provide for my kids and my grandkids. He skips right over that and he says, work so you can share. Right? Work so you can share. And for some of us, that reality, the reality of our wealth, has to invade us through giving. We have to understand that our wealth is there not just for us, but for us to share. What is it that God has brought into my life that I might share the things that he has given me? And so we see that there is wealth in Scripture that is obtained through righteous deeds. But it is never obtained to hoard for the self, which is one of the strong warnings of the rich fool, of the parable of the rich fool, that he was doing it all for self. So we have unrighteous rich unrighteous, or, and righteous rich, and then we have unrighteous poor. Proverbs 6, 9 to 11 speaks to this as well as other places. Verse 9 says, How long will you lie there, O sluggard? When will you arise from your sleep? A little sleep, a little slumber, a little folding of the hands to rest, and poverty will come upon you like a robber and want like an unarmed man. And so we see scriptures attaching poverty also to an unwillingness to work. Right? We see that in Paul. We see that elsewhere where there's this expectation that when we can and where we can, we work and we earn. And that that is God's means through providing for us that we might not fall into poverty. And so there's an attachment in some cases of poverty to unrighteousness. Toward poverty is a result of foolish decisions sometimes. That poverty is a result sometimes of wicked hearts. That poverty is a result sometimes of slothfulness. Right? And that's just a natural equation. It makes sense in this world that poverty befalls those who decide, I don't want to contribute. I'm not going to. I'm not willing to. Right? And so that we can't say that this is always every poor person because there's also categorizations for the righteous poor. There's also categorizations for those who are in systems of the world that are working to get ahead, and because of the system of oppression, they continue to not be able to get ahead. Right? That's the judgment of the first Micah 2 that I read that we as humans, that even God's country, Israel, built systems that oppressed those that were poor, that made it very hard, if not impossible, for them to get ahead, right? And God's law, which was established before the the children of Israel walked into um, Canaan and established the country, in his law there were written codes for how to alleviate poverty for those who continued to fall into cycles like that, like the year of Jubilee, for instance, was one of them. Every seven years, you were supposed to reset all the land and forgive all the debts. Can you imagine that world? Can you imagine? Right? Some of you right now might be thinking, that's stupid and foolish. Listen, it's glorious. And it displays the gospel. Right? Can you imagine? But here's the thing. God's law was never even perfectly actuated in a theocracy in a kingdom that was supposed to have God as its king, okay? Even in that environment, God's law was perverted and destructed, right? Even if we did it, we'd screw it up like crazy, okay? The only way the jubilee will ever come true is when the kingdom comes. And at last, we'll all experience jubilee, where we're all given land and all our debts are forgiven. Amen, right? So, systems sometimes lead even righteous people into poverty. And listen, I don't know if you've ever had to go to a a payday loan type place. I don't know if you've ever stood in line for food stamps. 
I don't know if you've ever worried sick without the ability to sleep because you don't know if you can feed your family next week or you're fearing the repo man or the cops putting that lock on your door and seeing your couch outside. I haven't been in all of those places, but I've been in a few. And I can tell you the weight of shame still has not worn off after a decade. Okay? This is the reality for many of the poor in our world. Shame. Fear. And guilt. That leads to paralyzation and depression and keep on spiraling down. That's why the righteous rich are those who will share. Okay? Let us be a people who understand everything, whether it's been obtained through, or whether it's the reality of poverty or re reality of wealth for us. Everything has been given to us by God. And the reason it's been given to us, and this is the key, is to expose what's in our hearts. So you may have never, ever had need. And all of that money is God's way in your life to expose your heart. Okay? The stuff that I just explained may have been your reality or is still right now. And that place of poverty is not a moral situation. It is a spiritual situation by which God wants to reveal your heart. The key is not to get rid of all your wealth so you can be poor. The key is not to get rid of your poverty so you can be rich. The key is to be wise and to steward and to observe what is God getting at in my heart through these circumstances. Okay? Because there's something in there that needs to come out of me and God is using this non-moral object called money to bring it about, right? And so the, the, the depth of what's going on here in the parable, in all of Jesus' teaching on finance and in much of the scriptures is that there is a leveling of the, the playing field, so to say, between all rich and all poor, because of the revelation of the depth of what's really going on. Jamie Munson says it this way, the significance of the heart levels the playing field between rich and poor because the treasure itself matters far less than how it is stewarded. How much is in your pocket matters far less than what you do with it, which reveals your heart. How you look at it, which reveals your heart. How you value yourself and others by it, it reveals your heart. You see, we can do some of the exact same things with dramatically different motives. You can work hard in a righteous manner to earn money, or you can be busting your butt to prove yourself to your dad. Right? Or your neighbor. Or that ex. Or someone. Totally different motivation. Busting your butt nine to five, or six to eight. That's some of our very serious reality. Different motives, same action. Right? 
when you go to a restaurant. You can tip well because you actually care about your server. You want them to be able to put gas in the car. And you know what? They're really getting paid because maybe you were there too once. You're like, ugh, I'm tipping, right? Or you can tip really well because the people you're at dinner with, right? You really want them to know how generous you are. And so you, like, fold that little envelope thing all the way open when you write your tip in there. <laughs> Take that pen out and get ready. You ask your wife to pull out the phone to do the calculation. Hey, what's 29%? What's 35%, honey? Oh, sorry, I said that a little loud, right? Totally different motivations for the same action. You can even donate to charity or to the church. Totally different motivations. The heart is revealed through how we view and what we do with money, which exposes. So back again to these two parables, speaking of greed and covetousness, and also speaking of a heart-deep anxiety. Sorry, the second one isn't actually a parable. Jesus is just speaking and teaching. So part of the point that Luke is getting at here in chapter 12 is that these things are produced, greed and covetousness, or, or, or a heart-deep worry in us. They're produced because of what we're missing on a deeper spiritual level in our lives. So listen, greed and covetousness come from dissatisfied souls that have not found their satisfaction in a gracious God. Greed and covetousness that say, I need more, I want more, or at least I want more than them, come from a deep-seated discontentment with God. Right? Some of that discontentment is displayed because you think you should have more than you do. And you're angry at Him because of that. When all the while He's given you Himself to enjoy and to find satisfaction in. And you say, that's not enough. I want stuff and more. It reveals a deep-seated sickness in our souls. Possibly one of the more famous quotes I've come across from C.S. Lewis says this, it would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures, fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us. He says, like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea, we are far too easily pleased. Your desire for more money, your greed, your covetousness to get up, to get ahead, to be better, to be bigger is not because you've got an unsatiable desire for those things. It's because your desire is shrunk, he says. You're satisfied with worldly things. You think that they can make you whole, and you've completely missed that there is a joy beyond this world that's been offered to you for free. You've fallen short of the greatest desire. You're playing in a mud pie when Jesus has a vacation at the beach waiting for you. 
So greed and covetousness come from dissatisfied souls and the anxiety and the fear that are in the future, as Jesus spoke about in that last section that we read. They come from trembling hearts that have not rested in the care of a loving Father. Look at what Jesus says in that story, as he unfolds those different scenarios. He says, God cares for you more than birds and you matter more than flowers. Everybody's seeking after these things and your Father knows everything that you need. You're not trusting in your Father. You're looking at all that other stuff thinking I have to get it and if I don't get it for myself, it will not be mine when all along God says, seek first me, seek first the kingdom. I'll take care of all your needs. I'll take care of all your needs. Two central verses speak to these things. Luke 12, 15, Jesus simply says, one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. If ever, if ever there was a more un-American thing that Jesus could say, I don't know where it is. One's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. And in Luke 12, 23, very similar, Jesus says, life is more than food and the body more than clothing. And so we have to look at wealth and what it can give us and the attitudes that are in our hearts that are produced when we see it. We have to look at it and understand this reality that this is not the whole story of life. Right? And for us, it's savings and loan and, and, and retirement accounts and, and, and all those previous generations it was different. Even further generations it was different. Right? In Jesus' day, there was such a focus on family and provision of family because if you didn't have somebody who could carry on your legacy, you were a disgrace in the culture. Back up even further, in Moses' day, you had to produce dozens of offspring because that was the only way you could survive into the future is that when you were unable to do the work and earn for yourself, you had to depend on somebody else to do it for you to provide for you, to take you into their home. We have always, throughout all the history of mankind, we have always looked to secure our own life in regards to the things we possess. Homes, fields, accounts, and so on. We look to these things for security when the whole time Jesus is saying, your Father has you. I want to go all the way back to Luke 12, verse 4. Jesus says this, I tell you, my friends, and this is a story, he's, or this is a beginning of a teaching that he's telling to thousands of people, it says earlier in chapter 12. He says, I tell you, my friends, do not fear those who kill the body, and after that, if nothing more, they can do. But I warn you whom to fear. Fear him who, after he has killed, has authority to cast into hell. Yes, I tell you, fear him. Are not five sparrows sold for two pennies, and not one of them is forgotten by God? Why, even the hairs of your head are all numbered. Fear not. You are of more value than sparrows. Jesus roots all of this in a fear of man versus a fear of God. Okay? All of our pursuing, all of our worrying, all of our greed, all of our coveting, it's all rooted in a fear about the man-made situations in our world, right? The, the, the delineation of worth because of wealth, okay? 
the ability to hold oneself up before others. What people think about me because of what I have. Even what I think about me because of what I have. And Jesus says, don't fear the things that only have to do with this world, but fear him who is eternal. Fear God. He says, fear God, the one who has the power that after the body is dead to cast into hell. What is he saying? He's saying there is a life after this life and it matters. And what you do here bears resonance in that world. And how you view your possessions has so much to do with how you view what God has made. That it is not simply temporal and short-lived, but it is ultimately about eternity. The comfort is in the fact that Jesus promises that we matter to God. And so we ought to fear Him. I need to close with this. A little while ago I was walking through the scriptural categorization of wealth and poverty. And I didn't give you any verses for the righteous poor. And I did that on purpose because I wanted to come back here at the end and touch on one of the most radical truths wrapped up at the heart of the Christian faith. We find it in 2 Corinthians 8 9. You've probably heard this verse seven times since coming to Stonehouse. I hope you have. Paul says this, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you, by his poverty, might become rich. There's a lot of stories about the righteous poor in the scriptures. And none of them hold a candle to Jesus. Talk about fiscal security. <laughs> Talk about eternal comfort. Talk about never having to worry about bread or shelter or clothing. Jesus Christ, the Son of God, all time eternity past, from before time began, dwelt in perfect unity with God the Father and God the Spirit in absolute eternal bliss with no need, with no lack, with not even a thought towards provision because he had everything. And what did he do? Did he sit there like a rich fool and say, you know, my barns aren't big enough. I'm going to build bigger barns. Then I can sit down, chill out, turn on the game and drink a beer. That, that's where real life is going to be. That's not what he did. That's not what he did. He destroyed his barns all right. He tore them right down. He trashed them. And he left heaven. And he was born in a barn. He was born in one. It wasn't a big one. It wasn't a fancy one. It was gross. It smelled. He changed locations for you. He gave up all comfort for you. He walked willingly away from wealth and entered into poverty for you. Jesus physically experienced a greater chasm from wealth to poverty than any human being will ever experience. I mean, I don't care how high the CEO and how far the fall. Nobody has gone as, from as high to as low as Jesus did. And it wasn't because he got caught. It wasn't because he got trapped. It wasn't because he was wicked. It was because he intentionally pursued it.
and he came and experienced poverty for you. He says elsewhere, foxes have dens. You know, people got houses. I'm going to lay on a rock with a pillow. No rest for my soul. Homeless. God provided for them. Right? Willingly enduring all of that to pursue us. Now listen, you show me a religion where the leader loses everything to point people to the truth, I'll follow that guy all day long, right? But a leader who gains, I don't know. I'm going to be skeptical of that guy all day long, right? Some religious leader that builds a platform so that they can have wealth, I don't know, there's going to be a lot of blogging, right? A lot of posts about that guy. Investigative reporting going down. Right? But the one who stages a cross, give me a break. If there's ever been a more trustworthy soul in the universe, no one has found it. It is Christ and Christ alone. This is the gospel offered to you that he who was rich gave it all up to you to show you what is true wealth. And what is true wealth has nothing to do with your bank account, has nothing to do with the neighborhood you grew up in or the plans that you have for your future. Your true wealth has to do that you belong to a kingdom that will not pass away, and not just as a mere peasant, but as a son and a daughter sitting at the front table, dining and feasting with the one who's given everything for you, right? When we gain this perspective of eternal wealth, it changes everything about how we handle what we have today. I do not have to hope in money anymore. If I'm poor, I don't have to prove myself by pursuing riches. If I'm rich, I don't have to feel shame I just have to steward well what God's given to me, be honorable to Jesus and give away what I can and glorify him in my situation, understanding my heart is going to be revealed through the whole process. And along the way, repent and glory in Jesus who gave it all for me. Amen. Let's pray. Father in heaven, the image of Christ high and exalted and rich and prosperous and glorious above all is, is an image amazing and captivating. It is good for us to see that you are uncomparable, matchless in glory and arrayed in splendor. But God, what is so precious to us is that you gave all that up and became poor so that our entire categories could be just blown away. That we could realize there's only one who had right to all that wealth, and he gave it away. So that changes our situation when we have wealth. (laughs) And that changes our situation when we have poverty. God, because we understand that our worth does not lie in our possessions, that life is far more than the amassing of things, that life is more than what we eat and what we wear and where we live, that life is found in the fact that we've been given eternal prospering, eternal wealth, eternal comfort, eternal rest, eternal reward, and that all of these eternal gifts are not given to us because we earned them, but because Jesus came and gave them to us. So God, would you change our hearts? Reveal our hearts first, and then change them as we gaze upon the matchless Savior 
who became poor to make us rich. We ask in Christ's name. Amen.